hello and welcome to the Clean Bill of Wealth podcast for Canadian doctors. I am your host, Galen Nuttall. Join me as I interview doctors and related professionals and talk about what it takes to achieve wealth in this, the Great White North. Not just wealth as measured by a bank account, but also family, faith, and health. Be sure to go to galenhelpsdocs.com. That is G-A-L-E-N. That's how my name is spelled. Helpsdocs.com to get access to my free video series where I uncover the top myths about growing your wealth as a doctor. North of the wall. Now, please enjoy the show. Welcome to the Clean Bill of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Galen Nuttall. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Brooke Strzok. Dr. Strzok is research director at the Decision Lab a Canadian not-for-profit firm promoting social good through behavioral science research and consulting. And before joining TDL, he consulted in evidence-based policy and data-driven decisions, advising clients such as the European Commission, the U.S. National Science Foundation, and the Government of Canada. Dr. Strzok holds a PhD in the philosophy of science. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So I like to let people know, so we are not actually sitting... Uh, face-to-face, although we have met. Um, we're, um, we're a couple hundred kilometers apart. Uh, Dr. Strzok's in Montreal and I'm in eastern Ontario. And I, one of the reasons how you ended up on this podcast is I saw you speak at a conference a bit ago. And one of the things that I found really encouraging about this conference was there was a lot of talk. It was a financial conference, but there's a lot of talk about human behavior, which is something that fascinates me in general, but also fascinates me in the context of financial planning. And this is something that you've done studies on and uh, you shared some results from the study there that, I'm sh- that we're going to uh, talk about a little bit. Um, before we dive into that, I was just wondering, uh, you know, could you tell us a little bit about how you got where you got and what is it that got you really interested in what you're doing right now? Yeah, sure. So um, as, you, as you mentioned before, I did my PhD in philosophy, specifically looking at the, the philosophy of science. Um, and the thing that really interested me was objectivity and the relationship between methodology and objectivity. What are we saying when we say that a finding is objective? What does it mean to say that something is objective? That was what I spent a few years of my life trying to wrap my head around. Um, and when I finished with that, uh, I started to get really interested in how that plays out in institutional settings. So when we say that a decision is objective, Obviously, evidence and and science are sort of one part of the input that goes into that decision, but there are other inputs as well. Um, You know, even such trivial things as like, well, what is it that we want to achieve? You know, the science isn't going to tell you what you ought to want. Um, (laughs) It's probably most powerful and most best and and sort of best suited to, uh, uh, to figuring out how to get where you want. Hmm. So there are lots of different inputs that go into a decision and science is only one of them. And what I was interested in is how we, uh, as humans, as as human institutions, how we make objective decisions and even what that means. So I got very interested in evidence-based policymaking and this sort of thing. As you mentioned my intro, you know, I work at the European Commission, National Science Foundation, the Canadian government here, really focused on this topic of evidence-based decision-making. And that was really at the organizational or institutional level. Um, and then a few years into that, I started to get interested as well in how individuals uh, make decisions. And individuals are interesting creatures. You know, we think about them as, as you know, either rational or sort of supposed to be rational. Uh, but generally, generally, we tend to agree on that point, that we ought to be rational beings. <laughs> Some of us are very optimistic and we think that we are 
rational beings, that we are what we ought to be. Some of us are less optimistic and we think that we ought to be rational, but we fall short in these, you know, very well measured and predictable ways. But there seems to be agreement that we ought to be rational beings. Um, and so decision making is really at the heart of that. You know, what are the different inputs that we, that we consider in our decisions? How do we, um, how do we kind of take those inputs in? Uh, how do we consider them and mash them together? And then how do we get a decision out the, the back end of that process? And then sort of the, the subsequent bit, which you know, for financial planners is really, really important as well. Once you have a decision, how do you go about implementing it? It's yeah. a huge question as well. So that's kind of my, uh, my arc. That's how I ended up where I am now. And when we, when we met, I remember saying to you, I said, um, you know, a couple of years ago, someone said to me, uh, something along the lines of humans will make a decision and then look for data to back that decision up. And um, I remember someone said that and I thought, no, no, I'm a very rational guy. Like when I buy a car, I sit down and I take all the data and I analyze it. And then the more I thought about what that person said, and I almost thought that, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp of, I mean, I've, I've, wait, I've changed over time just due to life experience. But at the time I was like, we should be all rational all the time you know, very much like the Spocks and the Sheldon Coopers of the world, like every decision should have its backing. And he said that to me. And as I just thought about it over time, I looked at it and I said, yeah, I, that's not necessarily the case at all. Like I wanted this car and I was yeah. going to end up buying that car, whether, you know, like in all likelihood, there would have to be some massive amount of evidence for me to change that decision. Cause I already make an, I had already made a motion decision. I'd driven the car. I really liked the way it felt. And unless there was going to be some sort of, you know, the airbags don't work in this car sort of scenario, I was probably going to end up buying it. And yeah. uh, so definitely. And so what about, um, you know, you mentioned in the, and you know, we've made a plan and we've, so, so yeah. So in response to that, you said something that you know, I remember when we spoke, you said around the lines of humans are not always irrational, not always rational. Like, is there, yeah. 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 There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, some of the stuff that we do is, is rational. Um, and some of the stuff that we do ought to be rational, but humans are also, much deeper and richer creatures than just that. You know, what it is to be a person is more than just sort of the accumulation of all of the decisions that you make in your life. Yeah. It's about what you value and what you care about and what inspires you. These kinds of things are really, really, really important. And that's something that I feel that a lot of the, a lot of the psychological literature, you know, the behavioral science and behavioral psychology literature is, is very much kind of framed in that way. It's, mm. it's all about rational decision-making and the way that we kind of depart from that ideal. Um, and one of the, the challenges that I like to throw out in the field is asking where, you know, where the space is in that mental model of humanity for being human. Mm. You know, where is the space for being inspired by different things where is the sense of identity where is the sense of community not just in terms of you know constantly optimizing your outcomes <laughs> but figuring out what's important to you and what's valuable mm. yeah no that's fascinating and i love what you said you're not just the accumulation of all the decisions you've made and i know that as an advisor when i became an advisor um, there's a heavy emphasis on data and that you should show clients data and the data should have them make a decision. So um, just as an example, like, I mean, there's a kind of a common phrase, let the numbers do the talking. And the idea behind that is, you know, I show someone option A, option B, and I'll use an example of paying down debt versus saving. Um, I sat in front of a client a while ago. Uh, their mortgage is very low. 
They could potentially make more by investing than paying off the mortgage, but they had a very strong emotional feeling about having lots of debt. Uh, you know, they're a doctor, they had um, a lot of debt for a long time from student loans, and there was an emotional, like highly emotional component to it. And that, uh, that client helped me snap out of it a little bit where I said, it's not just the numbers. And so now my approach to that is, look, if you've got a very strong emotional feeling towards this, as long as you're not doing harm, like, or excess harm, because you're making this decision, I'm fine with it at the end of the day. Because for the longest time, I thought, oh, I have failed as an advisor, because I showed someone the options and they did not choose the one that makes more sense from a rational numbers perspective. And I've gotten away from that because it's just not, it's just not realistic. (laughs) And it's not, and like you said, I don't think it's the way that it necessarily should be. Like, like you said, humans don't necessarily need to always make these completely rational decisions. Yeah. If I can uh, sort of give that a different, uh, a different spin, a different turn, you know, ultimately what, what you're offering as a, as a financial advisor is in service of a happy life. Hmm. It's about someone enjoying the time that they have, the resources that they have, about spending their time in, in the way that most fulfills them. And finances are a really important part of that. They give us the resources that we can use to support that in a lot of really important ways. But ultimately, we have to make sure we don't fall into this bait and switch where we think that like actually the powerful lever that we have, which is our finances, is the thing that we care most about. The finances are always in service of something else. And as soon as the finances start to displace that something else, we're, uh, we're losing track of what this is supposed to be all about, at least from my perspective, not as a financial planner. Mm. So from that lens, you know, thinking about your client's situation, Ultimately, the plan should uh, optimize their financial outcomes to the extent that's possible. But along the way, it shouldn't do undue damage to you know, their enjoyment of life. And if minimizing debt is something that allows them to sleep better at night, to be less anxious, to be less stressed along the way, you might say, actually, that is a good investment. I have invested the increment of difference so that along the way I sleep well. Yeah. I can tell you have a PhD in philosophy because that is some <laughs> serious stuff. I have an undergrad in philosophy, so I'm not, I'm not quite there. Um, yeah, that's amazing. It's a service of a happy life. And that's really key because absolutely, like I love everything you just said, because um, you know, what I say to people is people, people don't wake up and say, oh, I really want to buy an investment um, <laughs> in of itself or I really want to buy some life insurance in of itself. It's like, no, I want to buy life insurance because I want to sleep better at night. I want to make sure my family's taken care of. I just got an email this morning where someone said, oh, should I be doing something in response to the coronavirus? Um, You know, what's going on? And I wrote back and said, absolutely not. Um, Because it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's things like this have happened before. And yes, it could cause a market downturn, but historically speaking, it comes back up. And if you try to time it, you're more likely to miss, you're more likely to lose and not get back in in time to gain. Like that's just the likelihood of two reactions to that. Like, oh, there's a market downturn. What should we do? The first is, well, if you're Warren Buffett, you say you should be throwing as much cash into the market now as you can because you're buying at a rebate. Um, And my uh, kind of more behavioral hat 
uh, is to take a different approach in this and say, okay, well, you know, you're, you're framing the question in this way, like, should I be in the market? Should I not be in the market? The real question is, what should I be doing with my money? Hmm. Is there something better that I, can, that I can be doing with my money than what I'm doing right now? Hmm. And that completely changes the conversation hmm. because you don't have this like, well, I'm afraid of one thing, so I will either kind of stick with it even though I'm afraid or I will flee from it. You have this question of like, well, you need to think about what else you would do. It's not the fear of this thing versus the not fear of this thing. It's the fear of this thing versus the fear of something else. And that's a very different uh, calculus. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that into the podcast too because that's, uh, that's a really great way to frame it because you're, yeah, and that's amazing because it's that narrow vision of am I afraid, I'm afraid of something right now, should I run away from it? And you're yeah. saying, well, what would you do instead? Yeah, you're, it's not like you're going to end up nowhere. You're going to run and you're going to end up somewhere else. The question is, is that somewhere else better than where you are now? Yeah, that's really good. I like it. Yeah, because at the end of the day, that is like that money is going to go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, is it going to go into a savings account where it's not going to make, you know, it's going to make daily interest? Are you going to put it under your mattress? You know, like what's the other thing you're going to do? Not yeah. just should I run away from this thing? I like it. Awesome. You know, I recently did a post and it was financial planning or, or the beginning of my guide to fin financial planning says financial planning is an act of love. I feel that people don't do it unless they love somebody, including themselves or their future selves, where right. it's, if I didn't love anyone, I wouldn't own life insurance. If I didn't love anyone uh, or if I didn't love my future self or myself, I wouldn't invest. Like I just wouldn't do it. And, um, and I love what you said about having a happy life and it being a vehicle and not letting it in of itself displace the purpose of it, which can yeah. definitely happen. I mean, before I hit record, we we're talking about a study that's um, tracked people who uh, actively watch their investments. Like, and there was a there was a, um, a statistic that the more someone watched it, the less likely they were to make money in the market. And I feel like that behavior starts to displace the whole purpose of the of the of the investing or of the plan with something else. Of yeah. now, this thing is providing me a certain level of I don't know whatever it might be for people endorphins or you know it's com it's completely displaced the original purpose of it. Yeah. When I first started investing, I remember I was checking my portfolio value, like probably several times a day. And, uh, you know, for me, that was really important just to get a sense of what normal looks like. So that when I, you know, eventually kind of kicked that habit and rather than checking hourly, I started checking, you know, only once before lunch, only once after lunch kind of thing. And eventually you wean off the addiction until you only check once every few months or something like this. <laughs> but getting a sense early on in the process of what normal looks like was important for me so that I would have a benchmark against which to compare. Like when I check back in, in two or three months, um, because I managed my investment portfolio myself, uh, there's there's no sounding board for me other than my own reaction to this thing. Mm. So I have to be able to calibrate my reactions. And if I'm only you know tuning in once every few months and, and I don't have that that machine calibrated, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I have no basis mm. for comparison to inform a decision of well, you know, is this uh, a good performance? Is this bad performance? Is this performance so good that I should be you know ecstatically happy and spending outrageous amounts of money? Probably not. 
Is the performance so bad, so outrageously bad that I should be saying, actually, the stock market is not the place to invest my money. Uh, you know, the global economy is collapsing and therefore I should be sticking my money somewhere where it's going to be more safe than spread out across the global economy. Like, I can't imagine uh, what that situ situation would have looked like. Mm. I can't imagine a situation where I say, actually, the entire economy is tanking so badly um, that somewhere else in the world other than the economy is a safer place to put my money. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, back in 2007, I fancied myself a day trader. And so I had all my little, port I had my, port my, my Yahoo portfolio with all my little stocks. And, but I was, so I did that and then I started teaching and I would always have that running on my computer screen. So when I had a break between classes, I would take a look at things and it was green, green numbers up, red numbers down. And I remember on the days where I would go check it and they were all green, I'd be really happy. Like, oh, I'm so smart and I'm doing the right thing and I'm a genius. And on the and the class and, and then the days where it was red, I would have, oh my God, this isn't working. And I would like I would ha I would be in a negative mood for my students <laughs> because these little numbers on this screen were red. When in yeah. fact, at the time I was probably how old would I have been? Maybe 26 or 27. In fact, it was in an account that I couldn't touch until my 50s anyway. And I was yep. measuring my success by what was happening in a four-hour chunk of time and not what was happening in a 40-year chunk of time. Yep. And uh, I'm, yeah, I weaned myself off of that, thankfully. I'll, uh, I'll give you a little sneak peek. There's um, a study that we're starting to, to get rolling now. Actually, we've had it on the back burner for a while. I'm, I'm hoping now that the front burner is clear enough that it's going to get promoted but uh, you know, for the, for the time being, it is where it is. But the study is, is this. I want to know how uh, data visualization affects the kinds of uh, investment decisions that people make. So you, know, you mentioned that you're tracking your portfolio on this kind of hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis, and uh, celebrating victories and, and you know, uh, feeling bitter about sore defeats, this kind of thing. Um, I wonder whether the way that stock information is presented to us already suggests what kinds of behaviors are expected of us. So for mm. instance, if I go and check out, um, you know, the value of an asset, usually the default data presentation view will be to say, um, here is how the asset performance has changed, you know, hour by hour over the last 24 hours, or maybe even like, you know, in 15 minute intervals over the last six hours or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, does that suggest to us that the time frame of a few hours or a few days is the time frame that we ought to be considering these investments? Mm. Like what's relevant to me, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young guy, I'm in my early thirties. I got several decades to go before I want to start touching any of these retirement investments. The, the data presentation view that's most relevant to me therefore is like, what happened over the last three decades with this asset? Yeah. Because that's the time frame that's relevant for me in terms of, you know, figuring out whether this is the kind of asset that I want to own from a financial perspective. So this is the, the experiment that we want to run. You know, if we, if we pitch people stock data that's, you know, hyper-focused on what has changed in the last day. And usually, you know, the y-axis is truncated as well. So, you know, you'll get like, here's all the variation that's happened in the last few hours for the asset price between, you know, $25 and $26.50. <laughs> well, you don't get to just trade on the variation 
in the last few hours, you also don't get to trade on just kind of the variation at the top end, taking for granted that there's a whole $25 asset value that sits underneath that, that's, that's constant in what you're looking at. Mm. So if we pitch people data truncated in different ways, you know, hyper-focused on the present moment or really taking a long view and hyper-focused on, you know, just the variation within that temporal window or actually looking at the whole stock value, um, will we see different decisions that they make? Mm. And hopefully the end point of this is to put together some insights, some kinds of best practices about how to look at asset information in a way that's going to help you. So yeah. for instance, we might say, take... 65 minus your age and that should be the default view for the time window that you're looking at assets when you're thinking about retirement and never 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 truncate the y-axis those are my hypotheses that if the the temporal window of historical data you're looking at is aligned with the temporal window that you're interested in for cashing out your assets you'll make better decisions you'll make decisions that are more aligned with what it is that you want to achieve mm -hmm. No, no, that's fascinating because in, in, in effect, it's looking at results or data that don't have a lot to do with what you're actually up to. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's like a, a huge disconnect. It's um, yeah, no. It, and, and right now we're at a historical moment where the last big market crash or correction or whatever you want to call it was over 10 years ago. And so a lot of, you know, I, whenever I show anything to any of my clients, I show them at least a 10, a 10 year window because I say, look, you need to understand how these things work over time because I'll go to presentations by fund companies and they'll say, oh, we did really well last quarter. And I'll say, great, fantastic. I didn't retire last quarter. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I show that and, it, in, effect, and in effect, it, it was really fascinating to see what happened around the last crash because everyone started adjusting all their long-term projections that were, had been established over a 50 plus year time frame yeah they were now downgrading them because of this one uh you know 18 20 month uh window of time and yeah. i thought it was actually sort of a good thing because people got more conservative in general which i think can be a good thing in the sense of well rather than start i mean and rather than keep projecting nine and ten percent rate of return people were saying well wh what do i need to do if i'm only going to get a six or a seven and i say that's good you'll probably put away more money than potentially you need to now though when i do that 10-year projection someone could look at that and think, oh, the market just kind of always goes up. <laughs> you know, like there's never like this big, massive thing. And so I'm great. Um, I have kept, you know, PDFs for years and years of all the portfolios I've run and everything. So I always pull out that older one where I'm like, hey, don't forget that this happened because yeah. the most important thing we can do from a historical perspective is the next time it happens, not only is it going to happen again, I don't yeah. know when, but it is, um, is to, as long as you're in a good starting position, keep doing what you're doing. Like, yeah. yes, if you're invested in one company when something like that happens and that company is going to be tanked because of this event, yes, that is a bad place to be. But if you're widespread, just like you said, like, is there a better place to put my money than the global economy? Is there something else out there that's going to be a better, that's growing in a way that mimics this? Like, not really. Um, yeah, no, that's very interesting of the data actually correlating to the goal, which is much longer than what's shown in the world. I mean, every night the news says the TSX did this and oil did this. And before I became an advisor, I thought I should know what those things meant and I should do something about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and which is totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a big challenge right now for, you know, for people in their early thirties and 
you know, and around that age that, you know, really we have never been investing money at a time other than since, you know, the recession. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mentioned earlier on that it was important for me to go and look at my, or my, my portfolio value, you know, a whole bunch of times to, to get a sense of what's normal. Um, and in one sense, I was able to get a sense of what's normal. I'm able, I was able to get a sense of, you know, what normal fluctuation looks like over the period of a few days, a few weeks, a few months. Hmm. I'm now starting to learn what portfolio fluctuation looks like over the course of a few years. Hmm. But that is still all taking place within the context of a post 2009 economy. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say that, you know, we're going to have another recession of the same magnitude anytime soon. Um, I think there's, there's quite widespread agreement that that's not what we should expect as kind of the once in a decade norm for downturns. You know, there seems to be this cyclical pattern that once every 10 years ish plus or minus 10 years, <laughs> you know, the, market, uh, the market dips a little bit and, and we shouldn't be expecting now that dips will consistently look like that. You know, if we think about it as a flood, this is probably like, you know, the hundred year high water mark kind of thing. But still, I, I've never experienced any downturn really in the market. Um, and the most recent downturn that I have to look at is also something that people keep telling me is not something I should probably expect within my lifetime. So what does normal look like? Well, we have to ask ourselves ourselves like within what time frame? I have a baseline of normal in lots of time frames, but still not some of the really important ones. You know, there are probably very few people out there who get jumpy or gun shy about the kinds of fluctuations you see in the market day to day, week to week, even month to month. It's it's those 10-year, you know, dips that are kind mm -hmm. of across the market where, you know, people's guts get checked, you know, it's like, well, great. We sat down and we did this risk tolerance analysis and we figured out that this is where I'm at, but like now we're in it. This isn't just a questionnaire anymore. The real thing is happening and it's my actual money that's there. Do I really have the, uh, the intestinal fortitude that I thought I did to, uh, to kind of hang tight with the strategy, knowing that like actually the strategy is built with that in mind that this is actually built into the calculations about what the portfolio is expected to return over the process of several decades mm. it includes these you know cyclical downturns right. but do i have the the patience do i have um you know the the inner peace if you will <laughs> ride it out yeah. and let that happen and you know sort of just tell myself like it's part of the process, part of the process, part of the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's definitely fascinating as an advisor because I've studied both ends of the spectrum where there's people who, um, you know, there's an author out of the States, Nick Murray, and he is, um, I can't remember exactly how he describes himself, but he says he is an equity, uh, uh, like fiend or I don't know, fiend is not the word, but he's like, he, he's someone who feels that a lot of people, uh, they get far too conservative too early in life from a statistical historical perspective to get the kind of return they need to get in retirement. Cause a lot of, and, and, he, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's a guy who wrote a book called um, unveiling the retirement myth. And he had a PH, no, he, what did he, I hit a, uh, He's an engineer and a CFP and mm -hmm. the book is full of formulas about how everyone should be investing in the safest thing possible um, because that's what's going to work. And at the end of the day, 
I study both of these extremes to kind of figure out, you know, where do I lie in these, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm okay with, you know, I, like I said, I have an undergrad in philosophy, so I'm okay looking at differing points of view to see where I sit and what makes sense. And at the end of the day, um, a lot of this just isn't taking into account the human side of things. Like, and Nick Murray says it, like if you, if you're in front of someone who can't stand to be in all equities or, you know, a lot more, a lot of equities, then it's not going to work for them. Um, but he does talk about how many people are just far too conservative than they, they need to be from a historical perspective. And one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about was you, when you gave your presentation, you talked about the results of a study and I found the results fairly fascinating, but also very comforting to a certain extent. <laughs> and so I think if you could walk us through it, it was a, it was a test around um, sort of spending patterns and goals. Um, and I found it really fascinating. Yeah, so, uh, so here you go, the extremely polished five-minute pitch of this, uh, of this study that we ran. Um, essentially, the, the impetus for this study uh, was uh, thinking about discovery sessions with planners. So planners sit down and often have lots of questionnaires and, and you know, forms and all this kind of thing, collecting a bunch of information. And a bunch of the information that they try to collect during those sessions is about people's preferences. Um, it's not just about where you where you're at and this sort of thing but also trying to you know paint the target a little bit map out the objective that your or the set of objectives that your financial plan uh, will hopefully reach or hopefully help you to reach um, and from a behavioral perspective i looked at that and said okay well you know you're you're asking a straight up question you know what do you want tell me about your ideal retirement and uh and the assumption that you've got there is like people actually know that they've thought about this and they have this vision in mind and they've come to you with this vision and your job is just to help them get there. Um, but the vision itself is kind of not challenged or taken for granted. We just assume everyone has. It. And, uh, and that's not the kind of assumption that I like to take for granted. Um, you know, digging into the behavioral literature, there are all kinds of uh, interesting um, examples of people making very strange choices and this kind of thing based on, you know, different framing and, and stuff like that. And what it shows is that people's preferences are actually quite, uh, quite malleable in a lot of, a lot of contexts that there's not some like really firm 100% baked, uh, you know, set of preferences that's sitting there in their brain that the financial planner just needs to find some way to extract. So if we drop that idea, um, then discovery becomes a very different kind of process. Uh, it's, it's more about helping the client to shape preferences that are in you know, some, uh, some process of maturation. You know, some people might actually arrive in, in the state that we described earlier where you know, they have a very clear vision of what it is that mm. they're after. And they really are coming to you as kind of the, 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 the mechanic, the expert, uh, you know, person with the tools to help them, uh, you know, build what it is that they have designed. Um, so maybe that's one end of the maturity spectrum in terms of, you know, preference maturity. And at the other end of the spectrum is people who are just like, well, you know, I haven't thought about it that much. I'm not really sure what it is that I want. And my sense uh, anecdotally is that that is a situation that a lot of people are in where they say, you know, like, I'm really busy these days. You know, I've got a young family. I've got a, you know, a high pressure job. I've got this massive mortgage that is, you know, like this Sisyphean weight that I'm trying to push up the, 
push up the, the hill. And like, I don't really have the luxury these days of thinking about, you know, what my idle retirement days will look like. Um, that to me is kind of a, a, a compelling anecdotal narrative. I look around at a lot of people that I know and I say, yeah, I see people in that position. I understand how people could be in this situation where actually they're, they're really, really focused on just kind of keeping the wheel turning right now. Mm-hmm. And they're in a stage of life where maybe that is what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're not so close to retirement that it's imperative that they have a crystal clear you know, vision of what they want. Um, and you know, keeping, keeping the wheels on and, and making sure things don't collapse between now and kind of five or 10 years from now uh, is maybe the priority that they have to get out the other end to say like, okay, well, the pressure is now off on a lot of fronts. I can take the time that I need to reflect on these bigger questions about what I want in a longer time frame. So that was the, the impetus for this whole thing. And then we, we wanted to test it out. Of course, we didn't just want to say, you know, we hypothesize that this is where people are at. Um, so we ran an experiment and the experiment ran in the following way. So we gave people uh, a bunch of model budget allocations. So the budgets had seven categories and I'll, I'll tell you what they are. Daily consumption, transportation, housing, utilities, support for immediate family. Uh, we expanded on that a little bit to, you know, to, to clarify that what we're talking about there is things like childcare expenses mm. or any uh, expenses that you put towards, uh, you know, care for other family members, uh, you know, perhaps parents, I'm sure that there are some people who are kind of caught between both of those. They're both paying childcare and paying for care yep. for their parents at the same time, which is a big squeeze. Um, insurance and emergency savings was the next category, kind of the, the safety net category. And finally, retirement savings. So we had these seven categories. And the task that we asked people to do is to select between model uh, budget allocations. So this is kind of like the test that you get at the optometrist. You know, they show you two different lenses and they ask you which one is clearer, the one on the left or the one on the right. We were doing the same thing with model budget allocations. Which budget allocation do you prefer? The one on the left or the one on the right? You don't have to love either one of them. You just have to indicate which one is closer to what you like. Hmm. And so we show them, you know, two, we show them, you know, one, one pair, left or right, which do you choose? I choose the left. Okay, here's another pair. Which do you choose, left or right? you know, left or right, left or right, left or right. And we show them a whole sequence of, of these pairs. And as they're kind of making trade-offs between these model budget allocations, what we're looking for is um, what's the underlying uh, formula that will model all of the choices that they make. So for instance, you know, in a, in a very kind of mature preference situation, we might find that this person, as they're going through their choice sets, consistently trades off some spending in daily consumption towards retirement savings at a ratio of something like two to one. Hmm. Um, so that was kind of the first layer of analysis is based on the trade-offs that you make, what does an ideal budget look like for you? Um, and that already, I think, is, is kind of a first valuable output for people who are, who are going through this exercise. Like, you don't need to know what your ideal is. You just need to go through these choice sets and then we'll show you like, this is what your preferences or this is what your, your choices reveal as your ideal. But then the second part that we looked at um, was about the consistency of their choices. So 
you know, was their ideal budget something that was kind of rock solid mm. and, and consistent all the way through the choices that they made? Or were there areas of fluctuation where, you know, sometimes they were trading off at, at one ratio and other times they were trading off at a different ratio and this kind of thing. Um, and what we found is that about a third of the, the total population that we studied uh, had a lot of variability in, in, in one or more of these categories that actually they didn't have a firm kind of trade-off ratio mm. uh, between the categories that, that were provided to them. Um, we did some, some quality control in this. So we had some attention checks along the way, like little kind of sneaky questions where we say, hmm. you know, don't, uh, in this, in this question, just select the one on the right, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that people are actually paying attention, reading the instructions, this kind of thing. Um, and so we use that to screen out people that weren't paying close enough attention. Even after screening out the people who weren't paying attention, we still see that about a third of people um, have quite a bit of um, kind of variability in their preferences. And, you know, what that, what that says to me, interpreting that data is like, if you have very firm preferences, those are your deal breakers. Those are the things that you're not willing to negotiate about, things right. that you're not willing to be flexible about. Um, a good life for you must, you know, must include this kind of thing. Where you've got more flexibility, you know, those are, those are your levers where you say, okay, well, there's a range of possibilities of what a good life can look like for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of here, here are the bounds of that range, the upper and lower bound. Um, so that's where some negotiation can come into play to say, okay, well, you know, if, if you shift in this area where, you know, you, you say that or your, your, your choices reflect that there's some, some wiggle room there, if we trade some of that wiggle room against more of the stuff that you definitely want, will that make you happier? Right. So that's kind of the, the, the trajectory that we're going towards. Mm-hmm. I will say that one of the, you know, the groups that seem to have on the one hand, um, kind of the, the, the most variability in their preferences or the, the, the least, Validity in their preferences was people in the 45 to 64 age group, mm-hmm. um, which when I reported that finding to a bunch of financial planners, I think there was more than one jaw that hit the floor. <laughs> I think people recognized in that, uh, in that demographic group is probably the majority of their clients. That's right. Um, yeah. So that was a signal on the one hand that people are coming in without uh, you know, that rock solid, crystal clear view of what it is that they want. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the cautionary tale. Yeah. But the optimistic tale is that that actually is the, the wiggle room, the mange de manoeuvre to help people to build on the things that are most important to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I definitely, my jaw hit the floor when you said that. And I, cause I remember in the talk you gave, you said it was basically, you know, over around a third or over a third of people in general. Um, yeah. There's just a lot of variance where they don't seem to be headed towards a very specific or, you know, they're not able to show how their habits or their choices would lead towards what they want. And it goes up when you go to the 45 to 65 range. And I found it very comforting on one hand because I felt like as an advisor, when I started out, especially I, I was very much like you just said, like I sit down with people, what does your ideal retirement look like? And um, 
people, a lot of people just said, well, I don't know. And so I would do different things to try to help. I'd say, you know, <clears throat> imagine today you just didn't have to work anymore. What would you do with your life? You know, or imagine the kids are all grown up and all the mortgages paid off. You know, what would you do with your life? And, and then the other thing I started saying, because I myself had no clear view of retirement until my parents retired, mm -hmm. because that's someone very close to me who is now retired and I'm seeing them in retirement. And so once they retired, I looked at it and said, okay, now I have a bit more of a clear view because I see someone very close to me, you know, my mom's biking two hours a day and she goes to Ireland every year, you know, like all these things. Oh, that looks pretty fun. And my dad, you know, he does the cruises and, you know, like, so I looked at both of them and said, oh, wow, like I've got this sort of model now that I can start to visualize. And what I, what I found from that, and I mean, the thing that I say to people is I say, you know, even if you don't know what retirement's going to look like, what I say is, imagine it's a road trip. You stop working one day and you go on a really long road trip. And you know that for this road trip, you're going to need a car, you're going to need tires, you're going to need snacks, you're going to need, you know, gas or battery, whatever. Um, if at the end of the day, right today, you tell me that you want to go on a road trip from Belleville to Vancouver, and then when you retire, you say, never mind, I want to go to LA, at least you have the car, the wheels, the battery power, like you've got what you need to do it, even if it doesn't look exactly like you thought it would. And yeah. as early on as possible, I tell people financial plans, if nothing else, are organic because things happen, people change, um, you know, things, things will happen where someone will think they wanted one thing and then they want another. But I'll say like, if you've got all the supplies you need for this trip, even if the destination changes or the route changes, you're not going to regret having all that ready. Yeah, and I think that that, uh, that resonates with something that was discussed quite a bit uh, while I was working with FP Canada and, and at FP Week, uh, you know, November of 2019, that, that came out quite a bit as well, that there's a shifting value proposition right now in financial planning. Um, you know, at one point, the, the technical skills were really, really crucial. That was a, a fundamental part of the, the value proposition, if you will, of being a financial planner. You're someone who's really, really skilled at sitting down and crunching the numbers and figuring things out and mapping out what is possible, you know, in a budget, in a spreadsheet, which is a skill that a lot of uh, individuals, a lot of potential clients don't themselves have. Um, so that's, that's a really valuable service that they would come for. The thing is with FinTech, you know, exploding on the scene, there are so many tools uh, that do that technical piece very, very powerfully. And in fact, they do it much more powerfully and much faster than, than humans can. Mm -hmm. um, so if, you're, if, if you think that as a financial planner, you're going to compete with, uh, you know, let's call it AI-enriched Excel. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Big data, AI-enriched Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's no longer where the source of value is for financial planners. And, and so where, where does the value come from? It's really from the interpersonal skills. And I think a lot of the focus right now is around things like how do I help my client to implement the plan once it's built? Mm -hmm. It's still very behaviorally uh, driven. It's still very kind of um, measurement driven. You know, are we meeting milestones? Are, you know, things are, is the plan being implemented on schedule? This kind of thing. Uh, am I managing to kind of support my client in 
implementing the behaviors that we have determined are crucial for them to put their plan into action. But there's a deeper level as well, which is you know, something we've been discussing already today, which is the human element of that, not just the behavioral element, but the mm. kind of identity and value and meaning element. And that's one where I think a lot of financial planners, especially ones who, who kind of grew up and, and you know, cut their teeth in an era where the technical skills were really uh, you know, a crucial component of the value proposition, my sense is that that's a kind of planning that makes them a bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're not ready necessarily to be life coaches who also talk about money. <laughs> um, but yeah. that's one direction that the, uh, that the industry could head. I mean, there is already an industry of financial coaching yes. distinct from financial planning. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that that, that kind of division breaks along just this line. Mm. Um, Do you think it's primarily about building, you know, a plan that makes sense in the numbers and then supporting implementation behaviors? That's really on the financial planning side. Or is it really about um, helping someone to build a happy life and to, when I say build, I mean both kind of imagine, but then also, you know, bring into existence. Mm-hmm. This, this happy life that they that they build for themselves, you know. Yes. Uh, and that's more on the financial coaching side, recognizing, of course, that finances are going to be a really important lever um, in in whatever life that it is that you build for yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have to go pretty far off grid for money to just really not matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, never mattered at all. Yeah, no, and that's I, I mean, I think you've really hit it the whole fintech revolution. I mean, I remember I was an advisor as fintech, you know, I, I've been an advisor for seven years and fintech was starting to hit the radar uh, just a few years in. And, you know, a lot of the initial reaction is a bit of a panic of, you know, where do I fit with all this? And certainly I, I would go to conferences and we'd have people talking about fintech and I would get <clears throat> this sort of pit in the gut feeling of, is my job going to disappear? And financial planners are when you when you find those graphs of which jobs are uh, most likely to get replaced by a robot in the near future. Um, I'm pretty sure financial planners are up there uh, in that in that because I know lawyers are up there because people say, well, you can a robot can make a will. You know, you don't need a lawyer to make a will, or you know. And I think and so what 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 I did with that pit in the stomach feeling in my life was I said, okay, certainly if people are going to AI or an app or whatever to replace me, what is it that I can bring to the table that is above and beyond what they're replacing? All that being said, a lot of my clients are the kind of people who say, Galen, I don't even want an open, I don't even want to open an app. Like I want you to tell me what I need to do to get as close as possible to this goal as human, you know, as possible. And it's very much on the coaching side of things. Like for 10 years, I said I wanted to do a triathlon. I was doing marathons and I wanted to do a triathlon. And I kept saying it. I kept reading books. I kept watching YouTube videos. I kept tracking things. And I never, never did it. And then finally, I hired someone to coach me to do a triathlon. And six months later, I did my first triathlon. (laughs) So like the 10-year window shrunk to six months because I had someone there who knew what I needed to do and told me what to do. Um, and definitely just like you said, it's very much going up more on the human side of things. And a lot of advisors aren't, that's, they don't think that's their job. They, a lot of times it's this sort of, you know, the relationship side of things. Yes. Advisors tend to be good at building relationships, but at the end of the day, asking those questions around, 
does hopes, dreams, desires, um, beliefs, uh, you know, uh, what keeps you up at night sort of questions. It's yeah. still tough for, I mean, I certainly struggled with those types of questions in the early days because I hadn't really been trained to ask a lot of them. And mm -hmm. I also felt that I was over, overstepping my bounds a bit as a professional to ask these types of questions. But now I ask them continuously because I realize that's where I'm, where, you know, because I, I said, I think, can an app do this? Probably. And to some extent, an app can figure out how to do some of these things. But the intuition, the interaction, like that's a whole different beast. And, you know, the person to person contact is an important part of this. Like just asking the same question is not really going to sort of get the same effect, you know, right. Uh, there are kinds of information that we're totally happy to, uh, to input through apps and often kinds of information that we would be a little bit sensitive about sharing with an individual person. Yes. But the flip side of that is also true. There are kinds of discussions and kinds of reflections that we will have in conversation with another flesh and blood human being that we just aren't as likely to have with even a chatbot that is, you know, designed to as much as possible as possible mimic social human interaction. Right. Yeah. No, I love it. Oh, it's perfect. And uh, no, I mean, we've hit on a lot of things. You've. Uh, I can't wait to re-listen to this because I feel like I need to definitely zone in on a few things. I've taken a bunch of notes of different timestamps that I find particularly fascinating. Um, yeah, I thank you so much. You, uh, the, I, I love at some point once you get uh, that back burner project on the front burner and see how that data uh, presentation of data in finance how it affects uh, you know behavior. I think that's definitely a big uh, a big step in the and like the next direction for one of the things that the financial industry needs to look at is the mm -hmm. proper you know what does it look like to actually show someone data that's relevant to them rather than and also uh, so it makes sense for them. Uh, anything else you want to add before we uh, before we step off? No, I think that's it. But uh, you know, thanks very much for having me. It was a great great discussion, and I uh, hope we can continue that in the future. Absolutely, no, definitely, a lot more to talk about. Thank you so much. No worries. This is your host, Galen Nuttall. Thank you for joining me at A Clean Bill of Wealth, the podcast for Canadian doctors. I hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to check out my free video series at galenhelpsdocs.com, where I debunk some of the myths around wealth generation for Canadian doctors. Take care and talk to you soon. I love it. Because I think a lot about these things, but I don't always talk to someone who's doing studies and, <laughs> you know, really in the thick of it all because I have a few things going on in my life besides just thinking about behavioral uh, finance and economics, but um, I find it fascinating. And um, yeah, I, thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I also have uh, a piece of research that we recently uh, published with Capital One um, that I will send you. Okay, perfect. And it's about stress specifically. Mm. Um, and the effects of financial stress or the kind of the prevalence of financial stress, how it affects um, decision making and how um, what strategies we can try to use to overcome the effects of stress on our finances. Mm. If we say that, like, actually, the stress itself is untouchable, like don't try to solve the stress mm. because that's like renowned as one of the hardest problems. Mm. What can we do to alleviate the effects of stress on decision-making to hopefully, you know, produce a, a virtuous circle where it's like, okay, you know, you're stressed, fine. We'll help you to make better decisions. Better decisions will lead to better financial outcomes and better financial outcomes will help to alleviate your stress. 
Mm. So we play the short game on decisions and the long game on stress. Okay. Got it. Cool. No, thank you for sending that. I will take a look at it. I've read more studies around this topic than I had planned. Um, uh, Michelle, who also spoke at FP Canada, um, she sent me a 164 page PowerPoint uh, of results of, uh, uh, it was results of different, I think it was around reporting. Yeah, because they're big on how to report things, um, how, what statements should look like, you know, who's reading the statements, those sorts of things. And that led me down this amazing rabbit hole of, um, there was a study that was looking at how to get people to connect closer to their future selves. Right. Because that's another area that I'm fascinated by. I saw a Ted talk about, uh, it was, it was a Shlomo Bern, 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 Bernard. Yeah. And he said, you know, people, Oh, Hey, you're going to go to a conference in a couple of weeks where you're going to have a banana for the snack or chocolate. And 70% of people said something like that would say they'd have a banana. I'm a healthy person. And then when yeah. the day came, it flipped completely where 70% of people had the chocolate. There's another one around people walking down a hallway, memorizing a number, whether they choose a sweet on the way down or not, like a tray of like pastries and, the people yeah. trying to remember a longer number were more likely to grab it because they're in a bit, you know, their, their decision-making yeah. was affected. And so um, there was um, the one talk I saw, the Ted talk I saw from the first author was that they would take people's pictures and they would age them into the yeah. future. And they would put it on the statement. Like this is future you future. You is not happy because you're not putting away enough money. Um, because there's another thing about brain scans where they said that they were having people think about their future selves and think about a stranger and it basically activated the same place in the brain. Yeah. Um, so it led me down a rabbit hole of finding a study where it was people read a paragraph about the nature of human um, like identity. And yeah. one paragraph was said, I don't know if you, have you seen this one or no, I haven't. it's pretty fascinating. Um, it's they read a paragraph and so they had the, the people read one or one of two types of paragraphs. One paragraph said, you know, certain things about your life will change over time, but your core identity is the same. No matter how long you live, you're basically the same person, you know, it's still you. And then the other one said, our identity is very mutable over our lifetime. Um, our beliefs, desires, uh, everything can change. And the people who read the paragraph that, you know, talked about not changing were more likely to make decisions that were beneficial to their future selves than the yeah. people who had read the paragraph about leading them to believe. Yeah. What's that? About everything in flux. Yeah. And so I, uh, I took that idea and I wrote my own paragraph and I've used it as part of my, um, a live presentation I do where I say to people, you know, if I had a paragraph that's scientifically proven or has, has been shown to help people make better decisions for their future selves, and it only takes about 30, 20 seconds to read, would you read it every day? And be like, yeah, I'd do that. So it's like, great, here's the paragraph I've written based on this research that, you know, it's not the exact paragraph they use, but I've written something similar. And uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty fascinating to see people